I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Well, uh, thank you for being here today, everybody. Uh, it's been a couple months since I've given a talk here, and uh, in that time, a lot of topic ideas have piled up. I feel a bit like a computer printer and that my queue is very long, and now that the power's on, it all wants to print at once. So to try to channel that, I've decided to... Um, provide some commentary on some verses from the Anguttara Nikaya, which is the, uh, the numbered, uh, numbered discourses. And so that way there's some structure to all of these little thoughts that I've had. Uh, for example, I mean, the other day I was somewhere where uh, I saw a bookcase. And one of the books on the case, I thought from a distance, said, Human Desires. And I thought, oh, and I walk up to take a better look. And it said, human diseases. That was the title. <laughs> and I thought, that's an interesting comparison. Probably not all that accurate, but eh, pretty close. And I thought, that might be a good topic. And then now I'm, I'm working uh, with high school students again. And I'm seeing them on their smartphones all the time. And I thought, ooh, addiction. Let's talk about that again. And so there's all these little things that have been percolating in my head. So I thought, no, better to have some structure, turn to the Nikayas, if there's anything structured, it's the Nikayas. We always have nice lists and ideas to talk about. So the Anguttara Nikaya, if you haven't read it, is broken up into numbered verses. And each verse is like its own little lesson. So there's about 10 of them that I'm going to go through. And uh, in, some of, in some cases, they're similar enough. I'm going to truncate them a little bit. But there's some fun ideas there that I'd like to explore. And so, like a good millennial, in good millennial fashion, I'm using my smartphone and the internet because that's one of the easiest ways to get a hold of the Pali Tipitaka, the Pali Nikayas. Very easy to get the, the sutras on your phone now. I'm using Sutta Central, which is a great website, suttacentral.net, if you haven't used it. You can find all of the discourses there. You can find the whole Tipitaka there. You can find the suttas the Vinaya and the Abhidhamma, you can find it all. So it's great. So uh, the 10 I'm going through are like the, six, the sixth group of 10, sometimes called the finger snap, and you'll, you'll see why. The first verse begins, This mind, mendicants, is radiant, but it is corrupted by passing corruptions. An uneducated ordinary person does not truly understand this, so I say that the uneducated, ordinary person has no development of the mind. Now, one of the, the, the phrases that I really catch on to there is the radiance of the mind. Because I go to University of the West, which is a great, pretty much Buddhist university. They, they've definitely... Uh, become more international and, and more uh, secular over time, as maybe they should, but there's still a lot of Buddhists from many traditions that go there. And one of the debates that often comes up concerns Buddha nature, because the Mahayana Buddhists have this concept of Buddha nature, the Theravada Buddhists maybe don't, and we sometimes get into philosophical debates on the ontological reality of Buddha nature. I don't want to get into that. It's not a fun debate. 
and we're talking about things that we may just be passing each other by on anyway. But the idea of a radiant mind is something that I very much like. The idea that each and every one of us has the potential to be awakened, the potential to be, in Buddhist terms, a perfected being, working through our greed, hatred, and delusion, dissolving those and finding something peaceful and good within. And that is a radiant mind. And so the Buddha, when he talks about radiant mind, could be talking about Buddha nature, maybe not. But he is talking about this potential we have in us, something that has to be trained in some translations, something that has to be developed. What I like to refer to it as is cultivated, because I like that imagery of a garden. I'm not a great gardener, by the way. I think I've killed more plants than I've ever actually kept alive at this point. When I was a kid, I loved bonsai trees, and I've murdered probably 10 of them. But I still like that image of a garden because so much of it is relevant to what we do on the Buddhist path. Working with the soil, breaking up old roots, getting rid of weeds, putting nutrients into the soil, and planting seeds. All of this works so well with concepts like karma and concepts like generosity and all of the Brahma Viharas. It just, it, I love that imagery of cultivation, really digging things up and making things fertile. And luckily, the Buddha seems to agree, because then he says, if mendicants, a mendicant cultivates a mind of love, even as long as a finger snap. And so he uses that word cultivate, but he also uses, in a couple uh, verses down, uh, develops a mind of love, focuses on a mind of love. And when the Buddha talks about any positive quality, love, generosity, kindness. He, he talks about it in the same way. Something to be developed, something to be cultivated, something to be focused on. And for me, that's extremely important to, to, to think about, to contemplate on, because sometimes I fall into a very academic state of mind. I love studying the Nikayas. I love reading about Abhidhamma. I love studying and filling my mind with knowledge, and I sometimes forget that this path I'm on is a path, something to be practiced, something to be taken on into, into my daily life so that I am actually breaking up habitual patterns. Because I've got a lot of bad habits. I love reality TV. I watch a lot of Netflix. I'm a big fan of nachos. And these are things I'm having to break up time and time and time again because I have these habituated patterns. And in the Buddhist sense, these habits have formed over hundreds, thousands, millions of lifetimes. All of these habits always come back down to craving. We crave, we desire, we want to gratify senses. And man, am I a fan. I think we all are. That's why we're here. That's why we exist in this realm of samsara because we're all a fan of gratifying our desires. Now, the Buddha is quick to point out that desire itself is not bad. Desire for the senses, desire, desire in the sense of, of gratifying our, our lust, let's say, that's bad. And we kind of know this. I think intuitively, intellectually, 
when we fall into something where we're eating more than we need to. And if you look at me, you can tell I'm a fan of good food. I'm also a fan of sitting down and relaxing into laziness. So I bring this up because this finger snap is something that the Buddha expounds upon in the next verses. He says, Mendicants, whatever qualities are unskillful, part of the unskillful, on the side of the unskillful, all of them are preceded by the mind. Mind arises first, and unskillful qualities follow right behind. And then he follows with the converse. Mendicants, whatever qualities are skillful, part of the, un, uh, part of the skillful, and so on. Mind arises first, and skillful qualities follow right behind. And for many of us, we've studied the Dhammapada, and the first verses of that are very similar. You know, it, it's, it's the mind that, you know, precedes all things, and, you know, skillfulness is like a shadow, unskillfulness is like the cart, and the ox is dragging it along. And here the Buddha is, again, bringing up that same concept, that all of this path comes back to mental cultivation. It's a helpful reminder because we often think about the practice as simply meditation. And in that regard, for some people, it becomes a lot like a hobby. They live the rest of their lives like normal. They go to the mall like, ooh, sale of Victoria's Secret, right? Ooh, look, churros, a dollar, right? And that's how they live their lives. And then they go home in the evening, meditate for about 20 minutes, and then call it a day, right? But mental cultivation... Mental training is something that should be an aspect of every moment of our lives in a gentle way. You know, it, it's not, it's not a, a strict uh, regimen. You know, I, I had a discussion about this with someone the other day where I was discussing my, my precepts. You know, there are eight precepts that I follow. Generally, for most Buddhists across the board, it's about five precepts. And I went over the list of them. And I'm sure many of you are already familiar with those in terms of, of avoiding killing, avoiding, uh, you know, taking what is not given, avoiding sexual misconduct, avoiding unskillful speech, you know, uh, avoiding intoxication. And I went through the list and the person said, wow, that's, that's really interesting. It sounds a little restrictive. And I really had to think about that. And that word caught me restrictive, restrictive, is it? And I, I thought about it for a while and my friend and I were sitting there drinking coffee and then uh, I, I had to say, you know, in, in truth, by following the, the precepts voluntarily, I find a lot of freedom there. Because I see people who give in to, let's say, intoxication, and I don't see a lot of freedom. I, I see a lot of uh, worshipping the toilet and the tile and the bathroom. I see a lot of, of hangovers and uh, late-night nachos. Um, I see a lot of people uh, gossiping to the point of destroying friendships and so on. And it's important to remember that, that the, the path the Buddha teaches is one of, of freedom, but it's a special kind of freedom. It's freedom from craving. It's freedom from greed. It's freedom from hatred, freedom from delusion. Not the, the freedom to choose. I mean, if you want to have it your way, I guess you're going to Burger King, right? Uh, you know, you're, 
in the Buddhist path, you understand that it's a, a, a training of sorts. Now, I bring this up uh, not because I'm, I'm super uh, diligent. In, in fact, um, I would say that in, in many ways I, I can be downright negligent when, when I follow the path because there are so many distractions in life. You know, I, I think we, we often feel that, that today there are just so many things to do. And for me, I, I sometimes feel as though it's, it's really easy to be a, a Buddhist and really easy to follow the Eightfold Path when my life is either boring or miserable. There are so many times in my life where I really dove into the Buddha's teachings and really dove into meditation because I was depressed, because I was angry, because I had just gone through a, a breakup. And I remember years ago, just really tearing into some books and meditating on a plane to go visit a friend after a breakup. And he was going to go cheer me up. We were going to hang out in his hometown for, for a week or so. And that's, that's when I got into it. That's really when I got in the meat of it. Because for me, my life really sucked. I was depressed. How do we practice, though, when like life's great? Like, how do you practice when you're at Six Flags or Disneyland or falling in love? But the thing is, we need to practice then, too. Practice cultivating dispassion. You know, and, and that's sometimes a, a hard word, I think, for Westerners to, to wrap their head around because we're so much about our passions. We're so much about about what we want, our, our desires, and that's our interpretation of freedom, it seems. Mine too, sometimes. And, you know, I, I come across words in the Nikayas like, like dispassion, and the first time I came across it, you know, even words like, like revulsion come up in some translations, and it catches you, and you think, wow, is, is that how I should be? Isn't life pretty awesome? You know, in love, good job, more money, six flags, you know, like... And, and, and you feel like, woo, like I want to celebrate. I want to have cotton candy. I want to go have a drink. And, and then you do all those things, and then you still somehow manage to be dissatisfied. Because in all honesty, you know, when we talk about the, the heaven realms and the hell realms in, in Buddhism, they could be ontolo ontological realities, places that we go when we die, but they can also be right where we are right now. We see people in heaven and hell right now on this planet. And it uh, doesn't seem to matter which one they're in. They can be pretty miserable. Miserable billionaires. Miserable people with lots of, of beauty. Miserable people on the streets of L.A. I was talking about that earlier. New shelters being built, still not enough, right? A lot of people on the streets, even on the drive here. Heaven and hell existing right here even just in downtown Los Angeles. And it doesn't seem to matter whether you're living on the street or living at the top in one of those really nice lofts they keep building here. They're people who are suffering. And they're suffering because of attachment. So it doesn't do us much good to be negligent when we're happy. And I, I find that myself. I find that that sometimes I, I fall back into my old ways of thinking, my old patterns 
of being because I'm simply happy, contented right now. In Buddhism, we have the concept of sankhadas, conditioned things, conditioned objects that exist. And in the Buddhist understanding, all things that we see in the world, including our bodies, our minds, other people, the room we're in, the whole universe is conditioned, which means it's subject to change. It's subject to impermanence. It's subject to dissatisfaction. It's subject to lack of substantiality, a permanence, a permanent self. Nothing that we can say is me or mine. So even those nachos that I like, man, they're going to be gone. And even when I eat them all, they're sitting in my stomach and I really wish they weren't because I put jalapenos on there. And as I'm getting older, those aren't so good anymore, you know, and I keep doing it anyway. And there it is, suffering, eating the Sunday, still suffering, going on the roller coaster after the Sunday, definitely suffering. And, and that's how it is. We can sometimes build up our delusion when we're happy because we can delude ourselves for a time it's going to last. Right. And, uh, you know, I recognize that saying it this way, sometimes when I talk to someone who hasn't studied Buddhism enough to see the other aspect of it, sees it as very dark and, and grim and depressing and restrictive. And like, you know, I, I wish we could do like a like a PR campaign that wasn't really a PR campaign for Buddhism that made it more than just a hobby or some really pretty white woman on the cover of a magazine and made it something a little more realistic in terms of, of mental cultivation, in terms of, of recognizing that what we do is for our own happiness, for our own peace. And what we realize by practicing more and more and by growing in our understanding is that for the, for the Buddha and his disciples, there, be, there comes this moment where you realize that peace is better and more satisfying and more substantive than pleasure. And we often confuse pleasure and peace because we live in a pleasure-seeking society. And it's not just this society, it's all societies in all times. I just read a, a quote from Socrates uh, this morning, and Socrates was complaining about kids these days. You know, children these days, they're so ungrateful, they eat all their parents' food, they're opinionated. You might as well be saying that now. We always view things that way. Now, this next generation, we were talking about them glowingly, and yet they're the same kids that can't get off their phone when I'm in their classroom, you know? And that's just how it is. Uh, so, before I get too sidetracked, I'll, I'll go to the, the next set of verses. So the Buddha says, Menikins, I do not see a single thing that gives rise to unskillful qualities or makes skillful qualities decline like negligence. That very concept I was talking about. When you're negligent, unskillful qualities arise and skillful qualities decline. Now, in the scheme of things, you know, in, in, in Buddhist cosmology, if our skillful qualities decline and our unskillful qualities rise, we're really no better off or worse than anyone here. We're all growing and, 
and changing, and sometimes we fall back into old patterns. We're, we're all doing this. But the goal is to have enough presence of mind to steer the ship when you see it going off course. And to understand that perfection might not be what we think it is. You know, I, I've been reading uh, more and more stories about the disciples of the Buddha during the Buddha's lifetime. I find them so fascinating. And, and sometimes I, I find the way they lived their lives more elucidating, more, uh, you know, more a source of learning than, say, just reading the, the teachings themselves. Because you get to learn a lot. For example, arahants can make mistakes. They do because you see the Buddha chastising them all the time for doing something silly. You know, the arahants end up with uh, sometimes cosmic powers, right? And there's this one story of a, of a monk who walks into a village and there's other, you know, uh, mendicants from other traditions and they want to show off their abilities. And so they, they put this, I think it's like a flag or something on the top of a pole. And uh, all the other monks say, oh yeah, let's, let's use our cosmic powers and get up there. And, you know, they all make all sorts of claims, but here this, this flag is and, and no one seems to be getting it. And one of the Buddha's monks, who has now cosmic powers, uses them to float and fly up to the top, grab it, and bring it back down. And everyone in the town is amazed. Wow, this is what happens when you're a disciple of the Buddha. And everyone gets all excited and, and, and everything. But then the Buddha finds out. And he, sa- he turns to this arahant, a fully enlightened being, and says, Why'd you do that? Don't show off your powers. What are you thinking? Man, keep that stuff secret. We don't want people coming around for that right? Don't you do that again. And that's an arahant. Perfect. Making mistakes. So perfection in, in Buddhism, in the suttas, really comes down to mastery of craving. Mastery of greed, hatred, and delusion. To have dissolved those unwholesome roots. To have nurtured their opposite to have nurtured the generosity, the love, and wisdom to break free of one's karma and find the peace of Nibbana. But everything else, you can totally still be a knucklehead and have some bad habits. I, uh, one of my professors at U.S. was telling me a story about one of the Arahants who uh, couldn't give up swearing. He's an Arahant, fully enlightened, awakened, and uh, every once in a while, like just a little expletive would, 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 would come out by accident. He'd be giving a Dharma talk and something would fly out. He wouldn't be calling anyone names. That definitely would be unskillful speech. But he'd just be like, all right, that was my talk. Oh, all right, time to get up, damn it. And then everyone would go, whoa, whoa, whoa. And fully enlightened, fully perfect, Arahant, right? So that for me is so helpful because... There are so many times that I end up feeling like a hypocrite when I make a mistake on the path. I'm supposed to be following these precepts. Ooh, that was gossip, wasn't it? Oh, man. And I end up saying something I shouldn't say about someone. Or uh, I accidentally take something that was not freely given, like something in the fridge. And I go, ooh, and I just go ahead and grab that. And I'm like, ooh, Diet Pepsi. All right. For some reason, I've been drinking a lot of Diet Pepsi lately. And sometimes I take an extra one. Maybe, ooh, maybe that wasn't mine, you know? And, uh, and it can be real easy to, uh, to be hard on yourself when you make those, those slight mistakes, those, those slight faults, and you go, ooh. But there's something about being able to recognize that. 
and then steer the, steer the ship again. Realize, ah, course correction time, and continue. Because in the scheme of things, that's what matters. That's the important part. These little corrections that we make, that when we, when we have enough presence to see it. And so uh, the Buddha, after his, his uh, comments on negligence, gives the, the opposite. I do not see a single thing that gives rise to skillful qualities or, or makes unskillful qualities decline like diligence. When you're diligent, skillful qualities arise and unskillful qualities decline. So what does diligence look like in our, in our day-to-day? For me, and that's really all I can speak to, it's simply being able to, to stop for a moment in my day and look at how I can apply the Eightfold Path. How can I approach my current situation with right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right uh, effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And if I can do that for even a moment, that's what the Buddha says counts. Because in that finger snap, he says, if you can hold on to any one of those qualities, be it love, be it wisdom, be it generosity, any of those, for a moment, star disciple, A+. plus. But even more so if you can do that for extended periods. That's also really helpful because in the Buddha's mind, if you can manage that for even a moment, woo, A+. Plus. You're already making so much progress compared to those who haven't tried this at all. Not that we should necessarily compare. But there it is, that in the Buddha's eyes, it's our effort, it's our intention that matters. And when we study karma, we realize that it really does come down to our intentions. What do we intend to do with our thoughts, our words and actions? What do we intend to do with our moral conduct, our serenity and wisdom? So it's okay that we sometimes make mistakes. It's okay sometimes that we fall short. It's okay even that we sometimes become negligent in our practice and uh, maybe watch an episode of Gilmore Girls. I don't know. What are people watching these days? That's all fine, too, because we can come back to our mindfulness and go, ah, and course correct. And that's been helpful for me. That's something that I do as, as much as I can. You know, even now, there's, a, there, there's a, a day or two I end up realizing, you know, I didn't even meditate a little today. Not even kind of. And that's another course correction. And that's something that we do all the way till, till the end. You know, you, if you look at... Uh, the four stages of enlightenment, you see that certain things are let go, but certain things really persist and stick around all the way until the end, including conceit. That means you can be a non-returner and go, you know, I really am just better than everybody. And you're still a non-returner, you know? And so these things that we work on, it's okay that we're still working on them, that we're works in progress. And that even when we arrive and we arrive at that perfection, perfection might not be all we thought it was either. All right. I think that's a good place to stop. Uh, I'll, I'll end with a quote from, from Aristotle that I, I saw the other day that I thought was great. And Aristotle says, if something is within your power to do, it is also within your power not to do. Maybe food for thought.
Thank you.